Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Hey, we have one of the finest zoos in the country here in Seattle, the Woodland Park Zoo. And besides being well known for its award-winning diverse animal exhibits, Woodland Park Zoo is also a platform for educational purposes. And it participates in global efforts to understand and protect the world's animals and their habitats. One of those animals being the majestic gorilla, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So joining me today is the gorilla keeper at the Woodland Park Zoo, Stephanie Payne-Jacobs, and the mammal curator, Martin Ramirez. Stephanie and Martin, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Yeah, Gary, thank you very much. And I couldn't have uh, had that introduction any better than you said it. Well, you wrote it for me, so I thought (laughs) I'd just read it that way. No, I'm really happy. I mean, people who have lived here long enough know that the Woodland Park Zoo is just an awesome thing to have here. It's a treasure, really, of Seattle, and it's changed over the years and gotten better and better and better, especially for those of us who've grown up here. Say, wow, it used to be just a a cool little place that you could walk around and look at animals, and then there were also rides at Lower Woodland, Mm -hmm, you know, like uh, fairground rides. But now it is really world-class, and and it's something that we should talk about more. And and one of the things I want to, I like to tell people if they don't know it, is that it's not part of the city of Seattle's structure or finances. You're actually a nonprofit, right? You're in the middle of the city, but you're not part. Of, you're not like owned by the city. That's correct, Gary. Yeah, um, the, the city the city owns the property, um, but uh, the Zoological Society of Woodland Park um, actually operates the zoo. And uh, while we do get funding occasionally from well regular funding from the city. Most of our uh, revenue is generated either from our visitors or from any donations that we get towards the for the zoo. Yeah, that's it's kind of cool. People don't stop and realize, oh, it's, I mean, they think everything in the city is owned by the city, you Correct, know, and, yeah. and things like that aren't, and, mm-hmm. and the zoo is one of those, uh, non-profit. And then being your own, like, entity, you have your own mission statement, uh, et cetera, and goals, one of which uh, is education and conservation, like I sort of said in, in the in the beginning. Tell us a little bit about that, you know, and why why you do more than just exhibit beautiful animals to us. Well, I think it's a, zoos play an important role in, in both of those, education and conservation, uh, because we just, we just can't allow, um, we can't just be a facility that just exhibits animals. I think we play an important role in education and conservation in that, it's, like I said, like you said so eloquently, it's, it's part of our uh, mission to actually um, not just display animals, but to let our visitors know and let the community know that these animals are in trouble in the wild and it's not enough that we're able to save them the animals that we have at our zoo we want to be able to save these animals out in the wild as well and our education department plays a huge role in developing the the uh, the conversation pieces for our guests Um, our staff including our keepers are out there every day talking to our um, guests with regards to that, our education department has outreach programs where we go off zoo grounds and talk to school groups about that, about our, about our programs at the zoo. And then our conservation department, um, again, a huge part of our, of our mission is to be out there and do everything we can to save these animals. And it's not just about letting people know that these animals are in peril. It's about actively going out and raising the funds to actually support these projects in the wild. Uh, Woodland Park Zoo has a number of, of projects that we support directly uh, to help save animals in the wild, including gorillas. Yeah. And, and, you know, a zoo is, I don't know, positioned 
kind of unique. I mean, you reach millions of people. That many faces come to a zoo. I mean, even Woodland Park probably is over a million each year, isn't it? Yeah, we have uh, 1.2, yeah. 1.4 I mean, million that's a lot of visitors. Eye- that's a lot of eyeballs on a lot of animals. It and is. So you have that opportunity to say, hey, there's more about this than just this animal here in front of you. Yeah. And that's why some of the displays I like go into a lot of that. But like you said, there's a lot of unique things that go on beyond the the exhibit, right? Uh, Stephanie, I don't know if you want to talk about some of the, the gorillas uh, that we have in our zoo. First, if you can go over some of those, if we... <laughs> Old people like me go back to Bobo <laughs> and Fifi, and that probably right. predates you. It but does, yeah. uh, uh, how many gorillas and primates are, are in the zoo? And, and well, I, I can't really tell you how many primates we have off the top of my head. But for gorillas, we have three groups, and we have uh, what we call the geriatric group, which is Peter and Amanda, um, and they're in the large exhibit. And then we have uh, Vip's group, a silverback with Jamoki. And um, and Azuma, and then the third group uh, is our probably our most well known group right now is Leo's group, um, and that is Leo the Silverback, Nadiri the new newest mother um, on grounds, and her daughter Yola, and Nadiri's half sister Kenji. Yeah, and. They're fun to watch. I mean, they're the ones we see most often, <laughs> yeah, I think, if we... They we, are. They're, they're Well, they're out in the afternoon. They share the small exhibit with Vip's group, um, but they get a lot of visitors just because Yola is... Lucky for us, Yola is very entertained by the visitors, and she's up at the glass a lot, and she's really engaging, and... She's yet less than a year, is that she's right? She's 14 months. 14, okay, yeah. just over a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, people love babies in zoos, and that's why <laughs> they, they come sometimes, but then yeah. they learn a little more about it. So this is a unique group. Uh, Leo is not the father of, of this baby. Correct. He he is the acting father of this baby, but um, Nadiri was uh, 19 when we started really uh, kind of being concerned about the fact that she had not yet bred and um, had that experience. It's very important for female gorillas to be able to have that experience um, and important for the group. We try to keep the group dynamics as uh, close to um, they would be in the wild as we can, um, which is multiple females, a silverback, uh, varying ages. Um, Nadiri uh, was also unique in that her genes are very valuable. Her 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 father was Congo and he was um, a wild-born gorilla who died shortly after her birth. Um, and her mother, Jamoki, is in Vip's group. Or, excuse, yeah, her mother, Jamoki, is in Vip's group. Um, but she... Uh, so her genes are very, very valuable, and we wanted to make sure that she not only uh, uh, shared Congo's... Yeah. <laughs> shared Congo's <laughs> genes, but passed along his passed genetic... Along yeah. his, his genetic uh, his genes, but also had that experience and brought that experience to the group. So we brought Leo to the zoo with the hopes that he would uh, be a possible mate for Kenji and Nadiri. Um, Unfortunately, he has not figured that out yet. Uh Um, (laughs) That's kind of interesting. So you've got, and this happens with zoos around the country, around the world, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an association, right, of zoos and aquariums that that sort of share information and, and like you said, share Mm -hmm. genes, actually. Right. So what, uh, let me sort of set this up with a couple of questions. Deary is, what would you say, 19? 
What's a normal breeding age that a gorilla would typically start uh, birthing babies, I guess? Females about around seven or eight, okay. and usually a couple of years after that even, but no sooner than that. Um, and for males, they reach sexual, sexual maturity around 14 or 15. So as you look at this, and you probably are in contact with, like I said, there's an association that figures Correct. out who's who needs help or what's going on with the, I mean, zoos get together, right, yeah. and say, uh, we're having trouble here. We'd like to right. figure out how, how's, and so this male, Lionel, mm-hmm. he goes by Leo, right? He does, he yeah. was, He's got a history that's not just at Woodland Park Zoo. Correct. Okay, so yeah. give us that sort of big picture of how and why zoos do this, and then maybe his particular story. Well, I can speak to the big picture part okay. of it. You know, Stephanie mentioned um, valuable genes and valuable genetics. Yeah. And what that means is that um, within the, the zoo association that we're affiliated with, um, we, we have these, um, what we're trying to do is actually uh, conserve the animals that we have in zoos, right? We said that Congo way back when was, was wild caught and brought to the zoo. That doesn't happen anymore. That doesn't happen with with very few animals in the zoo, probably some fish and some invertebrates, but for the most part, all of our mega vertebrates, the, the, the mammals, if you will, just cool stuff that I work with, <laughs> um, that doesn't happen anymore. And so it's very important for zoos to work very closely together to preserve the, the genetics of the animals they, they do have in their collections. And so we create these, uh, um, AZA is the acronym, we create these uh, species survival plans for many of our animals. And um, there's actually a person whose designation is stud book keeper. <laughs> and okay. so just imagine this guy's got this or That's this his person. business card exactly says, right stud yeah. keeper what? I'm the stud book keeper for gorillas <laughs> okay and that person actually looks at the genetics using of course you know some fancy programs these days to identify which um, which animals are genetically valuable based on their family trees and then make those uh, recommendations for pairings. So, for example, one of the reasons why Lionel came to us was because his genetics were valuable, and um, up to this point in his life, he had not been able to be introduced with females. And so, Woodland Park Zoo, within the Gorilla SSP, Species Survival Plan, it has, a, has a very good uh, reputation for being able to work with animals that are, that are troubled. And so uh, they saw this as an opportunity to put Lionel in a position to potentially breed, and um, which is how we got him. And you know, Stephanie can tell you about how we've introduced him to females for the first time in his uh, his life successfully. Well, so he's sort of a was he like an orphan gorilla with no real? Did he get passed around from Zuzu trying to well, find a suitable mate for him, or maybe? I mean, he <clears throat> was he was. Uh, profoundly hand-reared. So he was hand-reared for the first four years of his life. Um, and those are very important years for a infant gorilla to learn how to be a gorilla. Um, he did go on to other zoos, and he, he actually was briefly with two females, um, I believe at Granby Zoo. And um, unfortunately, and it went pretty well, but unfortunately they passed away in quick succession. Um, they were older females. And that's when Leo was by himself at the zoo. And um, still within a breeding age and like Martin said still genetically valuable and and that's why the conversation kind of began how the conversation began um and we brought him 
to the zoo with the hopes that he would not only, I mean, first of all, be successfully socialized. Mm-hmm. That was our main goal. Um, you know, uh, being a, a breeding um, mate with a Kenji and Nadiri, that would be just, that would, that would have been perfect. Um, unfortunately, that hasn't worked out. But our first goal of having him successfully socialized and have a successful group is beyond our wildest dreams. I mean, it's just, they're a wonderful group. He's a wonderful silverback, and he's really come a long, long way. It's it's wonderful to have him there. We are talking this morning with uh, folks from the Woodland Park Zoo, Stephanie Payne Jacobs and Martin Ramirez, and we're talking about a gorilla in particular, Leo, and how he got here. And now, so you mentioned, we talked about is it, I'm going to pronounce it right, Yola? Yo- mm-hmm, okay, right. so she's like a little over one, mm-hmm. and he's kind of in this group now, How? and you were socialized was the word you used, right? Hopefully he socializes well with these gorillas. And so there's a bigger point to this for him and, and zoos and breeding and the sea species survival in the mm-hmm. big picture. How did he do? I mean, what, what are the steps when you, you know, people in that office say this gorilla his genes could do well here let's mm-hmm. get him there and then what happened when okay let's let's see if this works out um well it happened it all happened very slowly he came and um we over the course of many months we introduced him to these two females and actually several several other females that we had too um at the time in a group and based on their personal preferences, personalities. Um, it was kind of obvious to us that he and Adiri and Akenji tended to stay around one another and preferred one another's company. And so that kind of naturally became the group. Um, um, and it's separate from that. When we were talking about getting Adiri pregnant, um, we were kind of on a timeline and Leo wasn't really pulling his weight, so to speak. So we... Uh, <laughs> Uh, started having is that what you call it in <laughs> pulling his weight? I yeah, see. I know there's all sorts of subtle ways to say that <laughs> yeah. in, in animal world, and that's just in the animal world. That yeah. doesn't translate no, to the human world, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so Nadiri started having visits, conjugal visits with uh, Silverback Vip next door, um, and and that went on for two years, and that ended up being and ended in a successful pregnancy. Um, and so now we had this new situation, another new situation with Leo that we didn't know how he'd react. We did, he'd never been around an infant. Um, it was all new for him, and so we really didn't know what to expect. Um, and again, he just surprised us in amazing ways. He's, he and Yola, uh, uh, that was a very slow process. Everything with gorilla introductions is a slow process. Yeah. On gorilla time, we let them decide. We don't push them. Pushing them is would be a disaster. We, so you can set it up there. I don't think the public mm-hmm. can see this, no. that, that <laughs> you can have them close to each other, but not really in the same actual physical Correct. area, right? Yeah. They right. can get used to each other without real threat if you're not sure he's going to... That's right. Okay. Yeah. So they have visual access to one another. Um, and that's where we start. We let them see one another, hear each other, smell one another, and just kind of get to know each other slowly that way. Then when we see that they're relaxed with body cues, they're eating, they're doing things that relaxed gorillas will do. Um, and then we move on to the next step, which would be 
a physical introduction with uh, a lot of space to give them. So it's never in a super confined, closed area. It's, mm. They always have a roundabout. The and and um, we're just months and months. This takes months and months. This is not a quick process. But when we did this with Leo, um, it was a multifaceted introduction because not only. Um, were we curious to see what Leo's reaction to Yola would be, which had until that point been very positive through the mesh. Um, we were also curious to see how Nadiri's maternal instincts would kick in with the silverback in physical proximity to her infant, because until that point, she had been... That's right. I mean, if very, people stop and think about a animal's a mother, of, you know, how protective and... Uh, Guarded that can be right, and we you, were hoping to see that. So, from her perspective, this is also an, a really big deal. Thankfully, yes, because she's she was very uh, casual, uh, is one way of putting it. A how casual her, mother. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How about <laughs> so, her sister? Or I guess she's uh, Kenji, uh, that's in that group. A Kenji. A Kenji yeah. would, was not uh, introduced until the end because um, this is just the the based on our observations. This is the order that we felt would be most comfortable for everyone involved. The Kenji is very spirited. She's very playful, rambunctious. And I think she probably would have, um, we all think, we we think that she probably would have put Nadiri on edge and made her more defensive um, rather than being introduced to Leo and having, and, and uh, uh, nurturing that relationship and then having Leo kind of there to back Nadiri up when a Kenji was introduced. At well, the how end. was their relationship before Yola was born? Was was there a, a pecking order between the two of them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was. Um, you mean between Leo and Nadiri? No, uh, Akenji, Akenji and Nadiri. Aken- it's interesting. Uh, Akenji and Leo have really hit it off. So Akenji and Leo would wrestle and play and laugh um, during the times that we were introducing him to the group. No, Yola. T- oh, <laughs> it's like so a soap opera. It's it very, is. It's very convoluted. But <laughs> there was a period where we had we were reintroducing reintroducing Yola to Nadiri um, shortly after she was born because Nadiri didn't. Um, pick she didn't her take the mothering right away. She didn't take the mothering right that. away. Right. So it was a long process, and during that time, Leo and Akenji would be together, and they would be playing and and laughing and wrestling. They have a really close relationship, and so when the three of them are together. Um, Akenji is dominant over Nadiri as long as Leo is around. But when if Leo is off somewhere else and it's just Nadiri and Akenji, Nadiri will s- displace Akenji. They, so it's a very fluid... It's fascinating, though. Fluid. And so let me ask you about the science and the data collection behind this kind of observation and before you decide to make these kind of decisions. I mean, there's years and years, and we're talking about sur- species survival plans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of these things learned from years and years of zoos around the world and in the wild. I mean, this, yeah. these plans don't come upon lightly, right? No, and again, it's you know we have a we have a very experienced gorilla crew here at the zoo, and um, which is one of the reasons why we're giving these given these challenges, uh, and so yeah, so we build on on the the overall knowledge and experience. Um, not just the, for our own institution, but for all zoos around the country. So everything that we learned about um, introducing a silverback to a bunch of females or introducing a, a, a baby in with the silverback who isn't the father 
is is information that we can share with all of our colleagues around the country. Yeah, I just wondered about what kind of research goes into one of these species survival plans and how big a deal this actually is. And it's not just some animals are on yeah. display at right. my local zoo. Right. Yeah. And, it, and it wasn't like we were also on an island here with the, with this process. We also had re- the resources available to us, and we were whenever we had doubts about which way we wanted to go uh, with our decisions for for Yola or Lionel or whatever. We would ask the the SSP, the species survival folks, the person who oversees that, and just a whole group of folks out there who who have helped us with this, with everything from how to hand rear an infant, and you know, are are her weights in line with what they should be as she's developing? Uh, this is what we're seeing with Leo and Yola. Is this a positive sign? And just even just for the reinforcement and saying you guys are doing a great job. And we got that a lot. And so it wasn't like we're just in a vacuum here yeah. at Woodland Park Zoo. We, we have, we have the, the entire North American continent, um, zoos in all the North American continent, helping us with this process. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, people got to be interested. I, didn't, I haven't failed to give out the, a website or a place for more uh, information. Yeah, right. Sure. I mean, the, the Woodland Park Zoo has a great uh, URL, as, <laughs> right? That's the website address, <laughs> yeah. zoo.org. Yeah, right? Were amazing? you guys one of the first ones to <laughs> we, sign up? I, I guess <laughs> we jumped there in the very beginning. Okay, yeah, z- yeah. Yeah, zoo.org, and then uh, what we're talking about today, slash conservation. conservation but there's correct. also plenty of blogs written about all these different kind of exactly. things you do. do. Um, yep. yep. You know, I, I guess I want to get to a few of the things and beyond the gorillas uh, that people are interested in. Uh, but how did they? Is there a camera on the on the gorillas that people can on the website see stuff? Because some some animals there's a camera on once in a while at the zoo. I mm-hmm. no. Yeah, we don't have a webcam uh, at our at our gorilla facility. Okay, yeah, uh, we do. You mentioned the blog, and I I should also plug that um, if your listeners go to the to that uh, zoo dot org and go to our blogs, you would actually find um, in in a great story that Stephanie wrote about Lionel, about Yola, about this whole process that, that we're talking to you guys about today. Um, and just read that, and you can see not just the, how uh, the entire process, but you can also see the, the dedication that our staff, um, all the work and effort they yeah, put into this process. Absolutely. There, there's another one on there about, uh, this is what I wanted to hit, the, the, <laughs> there's some baby otters of, I'm going to forget the species, the, that are not ready for display yet, but <laughs> tell us about the, there's a new couple of... <laughs> yeah, we, had, we um, had a bit of a surprise back in December. We had uh, four Asian small-clawed otters. Small-clawed otters, otters okay. right, which is the smallest of the otter species. And these are on, on uh, their exhibit is actually in, a, in a, one of our newer biomes um, called uh, Banyan Wilds, same area where our ti- new tiger exhibit is. But anyway, um, you know, we talked about SSPs. We talked about, we can talk a little bit about breeding recommendations. You know, not every animal at the zoo is said, gets a blessing to breed. Uh, some animals we have to put on contraception so that they don't breed or they only breed when we need them to breed. Uh, our otters were on contraception, at least Mama was. You thought so. <laughs> we thought so, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, just, just to tell you that, that zoo technology isn't a, an exact science, <laughs> um, you know, we know roughly how long a contraception is supposed to last. Well, this, this, this animal was born within the window <laughs> of how long this contraception was supposed to last. So our first call after the birth of the otters was to our veterinarians to let them know we had uh, pups. 
The second call was to the contraception folks saying, um, <laughs> "Give us more you, information." You, you know that <laughs> contraception is supposed to work. It doesn't quite. But we were, you know, we we saw it coming, and we we saw the signs early on, so we were we were we were prepared for it. But anyway, we're now approaching um, two months of age for these animals, and they will be going out on exhibit fairly soon. Great. Uh, they first have to learn how to swim. And we do that in the safety of their of their building there, with in a nice shallow pool. And so once they've uh, learned how to do the backstroke, uh, <laughs> we'll let them out in the exhibit where they have a deeper pool. By the way, that the other otter exhibit is that the North American River Otter. That's correct. Show? Yes, and that was one of the favorite of uh, any time I go to the zoo. There's a million kids there that they could just stay there all day mm-hmm. watching them. Or the penguin exhibit, which is fairly new too, is, yeah. is an yeah. awesome display. Yeah. The Woodland Park Zoo keep. I love that about your zoo. You continue to innovate and change things and make things bigger and better for the the animals for us. Uh, one other thing I, I do want to note before we run out of time is you guys had a, a kind of a bad news a while ago with a fire there. People probably wonder, what happened? I didn't hear a, a follow-up story on that. Do you, either of you know enough about that to talk to that? Because there was a fire at the... Yeah, so we had... The, well, I used to call it the nocturnal house. Correct. Or yeah, correct. Okay. So um, our, um, our old nocturnal building, or night house, night house is okay. adjacent to our day house, which is our reptile building. And they're connected by a breezeway um, and they're also connected via, you know, the power and the heating and all that are all interconnected. Well, the fire was actually in, a, in the vacant um, nocturnal building. And but because it was so close to the animals in the reptile building, we had to evacuate all those animals um, the night of the fire. And mainly because we lost power and we lost, you know, electric. Elect- they need uh, heat. That they building need heat. needs right, some, right. Yeah. nocturnal animals, uh, reptile buildings. So right now we sh- we're still managing them in different places around the zoo. Um, for the most part, um, they all are healthy and doing well. But because we don't know what our next steps are going to be with the, with the reptile building, with the day house, we're still in the process of um, evaluating all of that. So what's next? You know, there's insurance companies that need to get involved. And as the zoo, <laughs> if we said top of the hour, uh, mm-hmm. zoo is sort of run by donations right. and members. It's, it's, so it's, exactly. people can contribute and help this out. Oh. You can go ahead and do that on the air if you want, Martin, <laughs> because uh, every dollar helps, I suppose, with a nonprofit like the Woodland Park Zoo. Exactly. I mean, well, you to know, rebuild something like this. Yes. Well, we had a campaign going on uh, at the time to help us rebuild the nocturnal building. Uh, the night house because uh, we were wanting to reopen it in, in a couple of years well now that com- campaign more than likely is going to evolve to help us rebuild both buildings yeah great well uh, in, in the big picture people okay let's move yeah, this forward and yeah, move it a little exactly. faster because there's some great conservation stories around reptiles uh, turtles Asian turtles and things like that and so we have to continue to, to have these animals um, front of mind for our visitors so we can help tell those conservation stories. Wonderful. And uh, before we run out of time, Steph, anything uh, we didn't say or you want to say about gorillas or uh, the exhibit there or what people should think about or where they can find more information, anything like that? Uh, well, they can always find more information on our website for um, what they can do to sit, help gorilla conservation. And um, I was just going to say that uh, what I love to do with with the visitors at the zoo is is... Uh, have them relate to the gorillas and really understand that they're not just um, there's not just one gorilla there's you know gorillas have different personalities different uh, likes dislikes and there's a million different ways for people to uh, come to the 
zoo and see our gorillas, get to know them, and to know them is to care about them. And so that's really my main goal is to get people yeah. to care about gorillas yeah. here and abroad. And then, well, like you say, a bigger yeah. picture, sustain the species. Right. right. Oh, gosh. Thanks, you guys, so much for being here today. I really enjoyed it. We have been talking today with Woodland Park Zoo gorilla keeper Stephanie Payne Jacobs and mammal curator Martin Ramirez. Uh, like I said, Martin and Stephanie, thanks for coming in today, sharing with us what you do with the you know the lives of gorillas and all the mammals yep. and all the animals yep. at the zoo. And a bigger thanks to what Woodland Park Zoo does you know, in educating us about animals and their survival around the world. Thank you so much yes. for being here. It's been Thank our you. pleasure. Thank you. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. I'm Kate Daniels. One of the tragedies in our community is what we could call our lost kids, the sad case of children being taken from their families to be placed in foster care. But the system is like Swiss cheese, containing lots of holes. This is not to bash the system. This is to look at the reality and define where we can be part of the solution in filling the gaps. No one better to give us the ways to do that than Todd McNeil, founder of Hand in Hand Kids in Snohomish County. In less than 10 years, this nonprofit has already made a huge difference in the lives of countless young people and families. But the need is still great and continues to grow. Let's meet Todd to find out where our place might be in the big picture. Todd McNeil, good morning, and thank you so, so greatly for being with us this morning. Oh, thank you. Just a Honored, honored to be here uh, speaking with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and the work that you're doing so greatly, Todd. It's uh, more important than ever, I think, these days because there's such a need. We all hear how things are so fragile and, and so um, almost desperate, I would guess, uh, is easy to say, in the foster care system. And you have stepped up with this incredible organization you founded, Hand in Hand Kids, which maybe some people haven't heard of, but I think it's a story that uh, we should share some of so people know where the hope lies, how each of us can really be part of the solution. Thank you. Hand in Hand was just, uh, I'm actually a construction guy. I don't have a, an education in social work. My wife and I are just normal people, but started the journey of foster care and saw a gap in services. That's one thing that I just hope the listeners will understand, that it can just be normal people that can make a difference in, in a child's life. There's nothing that we have to offer that's special as far as money or education or anything else. And Hand in Hand was really just birthed on the idea that as a community we need to take care of our kids, that every kid deserves a family. So that's a great point that each of us can step in and as you were saying that, that each of us can do this, it really is as simple as realizing it's love, that we care enough, that we love enough to open our doors for whatever period of time to a child who is really in desperate circumstances. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of love out there. In fact, I think that that is one of the things that's scary for people. One of the most common reasons people don't get involved with at-risk kids or foster kids that we hear is, I could never love a child, raise a child for six months, a year, two years, three years, and then release that child back. And those are the people that we really want. Those are the people that have so much love in their heart. I'm always leery of the people who say, oh yeah, I could do that. I'll just pretend that I'm babysitting or, or do a disconnect. And the kids will feel that. Our kids deserve to be loved. And what a gift you give to them that when they do leave your house, that it's a physical pain that rips your heart out. The children deserve that. They deserve to be loved that much. 
Well, if that is then a concern, you and your wife have done that and you continue to do it, if maybe not really directly, but seeing all the children who come to Hand in Hand Kids, you do have to part. But even though there can be some pain, isn't it essentially a good pain? It is wonderful. And uh, often my wife says we do this for selfish reasons. And the funny thing is, is that the broken heart can be healed by another broken heart. And it's the only thing where two broken things actually lead to healing. And, and being a foster parent, our healing always comes from the next child that comes into the house that, that needs us and embraces us. And so, uh, you know, when a child leaves, it's very sad, but we also know that it's time to get ready for the next child that we're going to have the opportunity to love. And it's, it's extremely rewarding. And if, if people can just get over that initial fear of that heartache, because there is a way to heal that heartache, and that heartache is by continuing in the work. Exactly. And so here is an opportunity to consider that, to consider how we might be filling in a gap. It might really be the most opportune thing because maybe we don't see ourselves as being able to do this for the long term. But there's such a need for short term and and we can choose those times when we can open our doors and say that this is going to last for uh, a few weeks, several months, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think it's a scary thing to to start off in foster care. And that was uh, one of the big reasons we initially started Hand in Hand was to start doing receiving care. That first 72 hours that a child comes in is, is critical. And most of the time, uh, the, the department, uh, CPS, Child Protective Services, just needs time to find a family member, a community member. And so there's this really low barrier way that people can get involved through our safe place program. And so if a child comes into care, it could be a drug raid. It could be some really icky stuff sometimes uh, where, you know, when they, when police do raids on, on those brothels and those drug houses, there's children in there. And so you have some of those icky cases, but there's some other ones that we've, that are just, um, just a parent who, for example, uh, an immigrant who had come to the country, he was waiting on his wife, and he was from Africa, and while he was here, had just gotten settled, and he had a heart attack, and didn't know anyone to care for his, his children. So that that's also a, a, a foster child. So it's not always abuse and neglect. It's just a child in need. And with Safe Place, people have the opportunity to come in and just do a shift during that 72 hours. And so they can come in and, and play games with a kiddo, might be holding a baby, might be taking a, a 12-year-old to the zoo, um, taking them in to get uh, a, a checkup at the doctor. And it's a lot of fun. It's just kind of a way to get, to get introduced to the demographic and kind of take that scariness away. That's a wonderful solution is is to do something like that. Uh, yeah, test the water in such a way that it's not going to have any kind of negative impact then on a child. We definitely don't want to add any more burden there. No, and it, it's uh, it's pretty fun. What we found at Safe Place, we kind of, we used to say, well, maybe we should have a staff there for the entire 72 hours. But what ended up happening is sometimes the kids would become so attached to that staff that it was very traumatic. And what we found was by creating almost like a camp environment where the kids come in very traumatized, but we put them at ease really quick. And they're just excited to see that next round of volunteers. What are they going to do? Am I going to get to go to the children's museum? Are they going to play games? Are they going to bring a craft? Are we going to bake cookies? 
Um, it's, it's just a really neat thing for the kids, kind of puts them at ease, takes their mind off the trauma that they've been through. And it's just a great opportunity for, um, for the community to be introduced to our kids. We only ask for one shift a month. So like I said, it's just kind of, kind of testing the water. Some people are, are a little concerned, maybe think that, that foster kids are three-eyed monsters and all have all these behavior problems. That the reality is they're just kids. They're just kids who want somebody to hang out with them and give them a hug and wipe a tear away if they scrape their knee. And we had a little insight into what that first 72 hours might be like when one of your now staff members and volunteer as well, uh, Amber was here a couple of months ago. And when she was taken as a young child into foster care, it was so gut-wrenching. There was no place like safe place. And she was just bounced around and sat in offices and was in a motel. Those kinds of things are, are, yes, further trauma to a child. So thinking of of a safe place and having an opportunity to create as uh, normalized or as you say that a camp like atmosphere what a perfect gift that is for that child yeah it's you know before safe place existed it, in you know in the mid 60s there was a big push to go away from orphanages and what ended up happening was through our laws our administrative codes we took away the ability to care for children in any facility-based environment, and it was the best of intentions. They wanted to get rid of orphanages, which is a good thing. Children belong in homes. But what it did was it left a gap in services for decades. So a child is involved in a drug raid. Flashbang grenades come in through the window. They're very traumatized. They might be in, in real stories here, you know, girls in their panties that police are shining flashlights and guns in their faces, and, and they try to gather up clothes, but all they get is shirts, and they're wrapped in a blanket. And how it used to work was the police would call CPS. They would come out maybe one or two in the morning. They'd put these scared, crying kids in their car, and they would drive around making phone calls to foster families who were willing to take kids after hours. And the list was very small. And so my wife and I took in over 100 of these kids late at night. And they come in with unknown broken bones, with uh, lice, scabies, ringworm. And then if you have other kids in the house, they're being exposed. Um, we had kids who were sexually assaulted, and we didn't know it, and we washed away valuable evidence. But it's also the trauma of the children riding in that car, hearing their story over and over, and constantly hearing the rejection. And we just felt that was wrong. So Safe Place was actually the first shelter of its kind in the state of Washington, and it has since been, been replicated. Uh, we had some lawmakers who took up the cause, and Governor Inslee signed a, a bill into law a couple years ago, and it is now replicated in Bellingham. Uh, there's one in King County, and uh, Amara has just opened another one down in Pierce County. So we're very excited to be changing the model of how kids come into care. And... Uh, I didn't realize that, but how exciting. You really are underscoring for us what one person can do. We don't have to be doing what you're, what you have done to that extent, but look what has happened that this ideal model is happening throughout the county, throughout the state rather, and here, all we need to do is step up and volunteer a, a day a month. It might be the one thing that we are able to do. Isn't that just genius? Uh, it's just a, we call it a low barrier way to, to introduce the kids. I think people want to do something, but it's just scary and they just don't know how. And um, at hand in hand, we just really want to expose 
our kids to wonderful people and expose wonderful people to our terrific kids. And Safe Place is just a great way. There's other things as well. We, we work with kids who, who are at risk of entering care um, through poverty, through the parents' immigration status, uh, through lots of different reasons, uh, health. And so we, we do some other stuff as well on the prevention side where we need people to coach soccer teams, for example, or help us out with field trips. Um, we have wonderful uh, partners. Uh, for example, the, the Seattle Mountaineers, uh, they come out and they teach rock climbing classes to kids in the neighborhood as well as, as foster kids. So at-risk kids kind of mixed in with foster kids, and we'll take them hiking and rock climbing. Uh, we've taught kids how to ski. Um, we, we try to uh, connect kids with caring coaches and Lots of really simple, fun ways to get involved with kids that is really, we, we call it just doing life with them. You don't have to do something special. If you're passionate about rock climbing, hey, what, give us a call. We'd, we'd love some help uh, belaying. Or if you really love soccer, uh, come on out and, and coach one of our teams. So very easy to participate by in these ways, something that is what we already enjoy doing and being able to share it with those kiddos. Oh, right. It, I think so many times um, people get out way outside their comfort zone uh, trying to serve a child. And sometimes you pull the, the kiddo out of their comfort zone. And I said, it is, it is all about doing life uh, with, with the kid. When you're coaching a kid, you're doing life with them. And there's so many life lessons. And when you're volunteering at Safe Place and you're wiping a snotty nose or, or helping a kiddo, you know, tie their shoes or that stuff. You're, you're just doing life, and it's really rewarding and really fun. So how simple is that? So if, if this is already sounding appealing and intriguing to someone, how do they go about uh, getting involved and, and volunteering themselves? Well, our website is the best way, and it's www.handinhandkids.org, and it's all spelled out. And... If you go on there, if you click on the events, we do volunteer information meetings. And it's a great way to just kind of check us out. And, and if it, it is a little overwhelming. We also have some other uh, opportunities just with partner agencies. The YMCA, for example, runs a, a youth development center, not only in our neighborhood, but, but all over Snohomish County in the YMCAs. And so if it's a little overwhelming to kind of make the big plunge we've got other other ways that we can plug people in and, and get them volunteering but that's really the, the best first step is to come to one of those information meetings and so you go to events and down under events there'll be volunteer information meeting and you can click on that and find out when the times are and register and and uh, you know even if last minute you want to come and you're not registered just go ahead and show up uh, it happens quite often and the more the merrier that's great, an important and wonderful opportunity of community really pulling together. And any time is the time for that to happen. We're finding, I think, these days a lot more stress and strain going on that the need, I would guess, is maybe even greater, Todd? Yes, the need is greater and the resources are fewer. Five not going to lie, foster care is really tough. And that's why I say it's good to, to just test the water with these low barrier ways to get involved. But foster homes are in decline. Families are strained and it's just really tough. And I think it's kind of a scary thing. And also because of our really strict privacy laws, which are just wonderful here in Washington. But the side effect of that is that our kids' stories don't get told. So 
My belief is we have a wonderful state with terrific people who want to help, but they just don't know the need. And right now, my email is flooded with children who need homes, and there are no foster homes right now or places to take them. And one thing that people don't realize is you don't have to be a foster parent to take in a foster child. You just have to have a relationship. So if you're a teacher and a kiddo at your school comes into care and you have room, you can take that child in as a suitable other. Or if you have a neighbor and that kiddo calls you grandma, you're a fictive kid. And you can also be a potential option for that child. So just letting people know that these kids are out there and they really need us. I think that a lot of people don't know that. Oh, it is heart-wrenching to think about a child just drifting. Their parents, as you mentioned, might be ill. As earlier on, you mentioned the immigrant father who had a heart attack. These kids could be left on their own, right? Uh, yes, yes. And what ends up happening right now is with the lack of foster homes, we end up with kids that bounce in hotels or they might stay in a foster home that's too full and so they're only allowed to stay there overnight because of the laws and the way the, the rules are written and statistics show that if a child moves three times in foster care they're not likely to attach it to, to a caregiver so it's really important that we do this right and currently we're not we have kids that might have six seven eight nine placements in the first two weeks where they're staying at different places and at the DSHS office during the day after they leave safe place just simply because of the lack of foster homes oh again that is so heart-wrenching and to think of a child who might be school age they're probably not even able to continue going to the same school and their whole life is being turned upside down Uh, correct yeah sometimes it's really tough to get them to school and throw all that out there and it just really sounds overwhelming but the solution is, is actually really simple Um, The numbers, even though they sound overwhelming, you know, almost a half million foster kids in in, uh, the country and 10,000 here in Washington and here where we are in Snohomish County, about 750 kids, but the number is actually equal to the number of churches, for example, or it's also equal to the number of civic groups. So if each church were to take on one child as a church, support a family that took in a child, the the problem is gone. Or civic groups, same thing. You know, the Rotaries and Kiwanis clubs and Elks clubs, if they were to each provide one uh, family and then care for that family, the problem's actually gone. So it, it's a very solvable issue. We just need to get the word out and let people know about this problem and about this issue. And we live in a, in a wonderful state, and I believe pe- if people know that they'll step up. Now that sounds like such a very reasonable and doable way to approach this. I had not heard uh, anyone comment on it in that way. So we just have to ask our faith communities. uh, You know, we may have thousands of people listening who are going to all these different churches or belong to these different clubs, as he mentioned. So we just have to enlist them and engage them in wanting to support a family to be a foster family. That's right. That's right. And in the agencies and the people who do this, we really work together at, on a state level. So I would encourage that even if someone is living in, in Pierce County or King County, uh, to go ahead and, and uh, give us a call or uh, just look into fostering. But they're, they're welcome to give us a call even in Pierce and just say, hey, what's a good agency or how would I start the process down here? And, and we'd be happy to 
to help. This really is a, a statewide crisis. It's not just a Snohomish County crisis. And we really do work together, the, the providers that are, that are caring for these kids. And so, again, here's dropping that pebble in the proverbial pond, just as you were drawn into creating Safe Place and others are replicating, so too, let's start this kind of movement that is really going to have this critically important impact for our kids. That's correct, and um, it it is... uh Again, it's just so rewarding. Even some of the things that, that you could, maybe you, you know of someone who is currently a foster parent and maybe just reach out and see if there's some way that you could help or you you belong to a, to a rotary and you know that one of your members is fostering. Just even talk to them. It, it can be very overwhelming. And again, because of privacy laws, we're really not allowed to share a lot and talk a lot. And it, it can be lonely at times. Um, and it's really nice sometimes to just know that people have your back. I'll give you a great example. Uh, we have six kids in our house, and, and you just don't make much money working for a nonprofit. But I have a, a friend, wonderful friend, uh, who, um, who have a cabin up in the woods. And it's Kurt and Carrie Campbell from uh, the Nelson Auto Group down there. And they are just wonderful supporters of our family. And so last weekend, we got away for free for five days in a, in a snowy cabin in the mountains and snowshoeing. These wonderful just gestures and acts of kindness are wonderful. So the Campbells aren't in a position where they can foster, but they are in a position where they can help out families like ours and just give us that, that little break or that little uh, special experience that, that our kids need. And another way, then, if we're not able to take this on on a more regular, full-time, uh, day-to-day basis, you were mentioning like these kind of uh, experiences to go out and coach soccer or take a group of kids out to a movie. Yeah, there's so many low-barrier ways to get involved, and I would, would really encourage that um, at Hand in Hand, we're about community-based volunteerism. And if you are inspired and, and you don't live near us in the Snohomish County area, to really look into your local Boys and Girls Club or your local YMCA and look for these opportunities to be a camp counselor, to work with the children. And yes, these field trips, these camps, these opportunities to take groups of kids on field trips to the movie or, or to theater. Um, it's just wonderful taking groups of kids to the Fifth Avenue Theater or to the ballet and so many of these really special places that are typically expensive they're wanting to help and wanting to help us expose kids to the arts for example fifth avenue is is just a terrific partner and they have these opportunities where you can get extremely discounted and sometimes even free tickets for kids if you're working with for example a minority achievers uh, group at a at a ymca drop-in center so the YMCA really starting with their youth development centers because they're the ones who kind of know the needs of the kids and what else was out there Great. I'd like to have you give us a a little closer look at some of the kids and the families. And you were mentioning earlier on a father from Africa suffering the heart attack. But there are more of the immigrant families in our communities. And it seems that these children are suffering perhaps more so than normally one would find. Yeah, they're very scared right now. And what's funny, working in this community for a long time, um, this sounds awful, but it seems like politically we always need a boogeyman. And it's not a 
conservative or liberal thing or even a Democrat or Republican thing. It's just kind of our, our broken human nature that we need the boogeyman. And, and up in our community, it, it used to be the Vietnamese. They were, um, you know, they were communist infiltrators. And then it was the Cambodians who were going to take all the uh, spots in the school. And then we worked a lot with Russians and Ukrainians volunteering in the neighborhood. And they all belonged to the mafia and all these stereotypes. And then the African immigrants came and they were all um, you know, child soldiers and, and we're going to run gangs. And right now it is, a lot of it is directed at the Hispanic community, especially uh, Mexicans. And so it's really scary for our children. And so many of the families that we do work with are, their parents were brought here as children to America. Uh, their, their grandparents were seeking a better life, but their parents are undocumented. And they're very scared right now. And we do have instances where where parents and families are separated, may have come here when they were two or three years old, and there really isn't a path to legal citizenship. And so they're very scared, they're very unsure, and there's a lot of prejudice that goes on right now and a lot of misinformation within the immigrant community. And what we find is that the immigrants typically are extremely hardworking, they are resilient, they're wonderful, and we really need to put a face on these terrific kids, regardless of their nationality, their children, and we need to do a better job of caring for them and making them feel safe. Yes, to realize these are human beings. We are connected. We need to realize that connection rather than, I like how you phrased it as being a boogeyman. You know, let's get over that and realize the value of each single human being. Correct. And it has to start in the home when three of my children are Mexican and the harassment that they've taken at school has been pretty rough that they're going to get deported on the soccer field. A lot of comments over this last year. And, and what I have to tell my kids is that it's not those kids' fault, that they're hearing it on the radio, on TV. They're hearing it in the home and to, to show compassion to them as well. But our words do matter. It is really tough for my kids to be scared that they're going to be deported, even though they're U.S. citizens. They're, they're adopted, they have valid Social Security numbers, but there's still that fear because of what's being told to them at school and the constant harassment. And, you know, just even some of the Facebook stuff, people seem to think that it's really funny right now to put posts with funny pictures of, of Hispanics uh, telling them to hide and things like that. And, and our kids see this. And so the community we work in is typically full of people from a crisis the previous two to three years. And right now it is mostly Hispanics fleeing um, drug violence in Mexico, Central America, and South America. But it's, it's always been that way. For example, when the earthquake hit in Port-au-Prince, had an incredible amount of, of undocumented Haitian immigrants. Uh, or when the Darfur region uh, was really flaring up, we had an incredible amount of, of Sudanese undocumented immigrants. And to just really see these people who just really want the best for their family. And I think what we do is we might take the one out of 300 who's coming here for the wrong reasons, and they become our, our boogeyman, so to speak, and we lump everyone into one group. And it's really harmful to our children. And I think you're helping us to realize, Todd, is 
the human factor, really to see the individual, really to look within ourselves, to practice love and kindness and acceptance, and maybe just give ourselves that opportunity to test this, as we said earlier on, and find an opportunity to volunteer or spend uh, that day at Safe Place and become part of this community, right? Right. And I don't think that people are, you know, intentionally doing this. Sometimes, again, it's just not knowing who it is that we serve. And I could give a, a great example, a local pitch man who was one of my closest friends. His name was Rob Delkey, and he was the pitch man for Vern Fonk. He really didn't understand who our kids were, who foster kids were or immigrants. And to be honest, he's a loving, caring man and father, but was also very judgmental, but a good friend. And my challenge to him was, Rob, come and hang out with my kids. Come and meet my kids and see who they are. Come and meet my family. And what's funny is by hanging with our kids, he was broken and was filled with tears many times, of tears of joy from hanging out with our children and our families and seeing what they had to offer. And what ended up happening is he ended up emceeing our fundraisers because he believes so much in the work. And that wasn't anything that I told him or I did. It was just that he came out and he actually met the kids and met the families and actually hung out with them. And that's what changed him. Again, they're not a boogeyman. They're just human beings and people who have dreams and hopes and just want to have a good, safe life for their children and their families. Oh, that's a wonderful and an important story, one for each of us to really embrace. And if we need to challenge ourselves, if we find those barriers existing Well, Todd McNeil, it's been so incredible to have you share this with us. I wish we had more time, but I hope that we covered the essential pieces of what's going on. Let's just mention the website once again. So that's the place to get the information that we need and get involved. Yes, it's www.handinhandkids.org, all spelled out H-A-N-D-I-N-H-A-N-D-K-I-D-S.org. And you can look around at some of the work that we do, or you can click on the events and uh, register for one of our volunteer information meetings. And like I said, if you if you live in Pierce County and you're interested in foster, give us a call. Just let us know, hey, I'm in Pierce County. Uh, who's, who's a good agency that I could contact down there? And, and we'll get you plugged in. Perfect. Well, again, many thanks. You are doing such important and loving work, building relationships in our community. Thank you for taking time with us this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Thank you so much.